If you'd like to learn more about the Texas Radio Theater Company, be sure to log on to www.texasradiotheater.com. Welcome to this week's Texas Radio Theater Podcast. This time you'll hear the conclusion of Spunky McLean and the murder at the Rockford Theater. If you didn't hear part one, you might want to upload our previous podcast. This play was performed by the Texas Radio Theater Company in the style of the famous radio detectives of the 40s and 50s. It was written and directed by Sonny Bynum, produced and recorded by the Texas Radio Theater Company on May 17th, 2002. We return to Act Two of Spunky McLean and the murder at the Rockford Theater. I was down for the count. The man in the dark dragged me to a heap of trash in the alley. Time passed. Then suddenly... The scream brought me out of my stupor. I looked around. I was in an alley. My head pounded like a whole mouthful of sore teeth. I got up and tried to run, but I met the bricks again. I had to get help. I tried hard to keep on my feet. I staggered to the end of the alley. Someone must have laid me down right behind the theater. I sashayed to a phone booth like I'd been swilling Mickey Finn bourbon. Hello, uh, hello, operator. Give me the 22nd precinct. <sighs> my headache was getting worse. I could feel my heart pounding in every part of my face. I reached back to feel the back of my head. It was like someone hid two golf balls under my hair. Hello, Edwards? Yeah, it's Spunky McLean. Listen, you gotta get down here. I'll meet you in front of the Rockford Theater on King Street. I don't exactly know, but I got clubbed and I heard a woman scream. Of course I'm sure. It woke me up. Listen, just tell O'Doyle that there's a possible 187 at the Rockford. That's right. That's right, Edward's homicide. Spunky, Spunky, what is, what's going on? Oh my, that's a nasty bomb. You ought to see a doctor. No time. Bust down that door. We've got to get in there. Spunky, are you sure about this now? You know me, O'Doyle. You know I wouldn't send you on a wild goose chase. Well, yeah, break it down, Clemens. Yes, sir. Oh. That'll cost the department a bit. Keep your eyes peeled, boys. The fellow that knocked me out might still be in here. I can't see a blasted thing. Find the light switches. The dressing hall is all the way at the back. Don't touch anything if you don't have to. I've got a hunch we might be standing in the middle of a crime scene. Found one, sir. Now that's better. Follow me, Sergeant. The theater is through these doors over here. Right here is where I got it in the back of the head. There's no sign of a struggle. No, well, that's because there wasn't any. I went down like a sack of potatoes. Hey, what's going on in there? We've got to figure out how to bring these blasted house lights up. It's as dark as a black cat under the Blarney Stone in here. Sergeant O'Doyle, there's a woman out here who says she works here. Don't let anyone in. Now get rid of her. No, wait. That's Darling Lovejoy. She could be useful. Let her in, Sergeant. If that guy's still around, he won't try anything with us here. Whatever you say, Spunky. Clements, get her in here. Hey, ma'am, will you come with me, please? Listen, what's going on? In- hey, if it isn't Mac Daddy. Mac Daddy? <laughs> Never mind. It's a long story. Darlene, suppose you tell us how we can bring up the house lights. Yeah, the light booth is upstairs on the balcony. Clements. I'll get them, sir. Say, what's going on in here? Don't worry about it, baby. Hopefully nothing. We just got to check the place out. What's the quickest way to the dressing hall? Oh, it's easy. You just go... Found them, sir. Yeah! Mary and Joseph. And who's that? It's Gina! <laughs> the stage curtain was drawn. 
The house lights shed dim light on the body hanging only a few feet from the stage. As still as still. And framed by the noose she hung from with the beautiful face of Gina Ferrelli. Why did she do it? Why? Clemens. Clemens, Clemens, Jones, get her down from there. After we sent Darlene home, I gave Sergeant O'Doyle all of the information I had on Ferrelli. It was a long night. It's a tragedy, a pure tragedy. That scream you heard was probably the poor lamb realized too late what she was doing. Oh, well, Spunky, I'll call you if I need anything else. The timpani players in my head didn't give it a rest until I finally got to sleep. But that didn't help my mind, spinning with all the questions. The next day I awoke to find Florel sitting by my bed with a steaming cup of joe, a delicious-looking muffin, and a stern look on her face. Uh, Florel, what are you doing here? I'm here to give you this. Oh, oh, She slapped an ice pack on the back of my head. She must have seen me come in last night. Uh, thanks. Spunky, what am I going to do with you? You're going to get yourself killed out there someday. Maybe I should do it first, no? Ow! You're on the right track. Who knows? Maybe I'll learn someday, huh? I wish you would hurry up about it. You know I'm not going to wait forever. Eat your breakfast. You know, Florel, you are really good to me. I know. The whole neighborhood knows. You don't know it yet, but you will. I just hope it is not too late, huh? Get some rest. I have to go help my mom with the store. Uh, thanks for the uh, breakfast. Oof. I would love to have taken the morning off, but I also had to get back to work. I called Dr. Dickens over to get the latest scoop on things. It looked like I was out of work again, but I had a sneaking suspicion that it wouldn't remain that way for long. Oh my, that is a nasty bump. Yeah, it was a lot bigger before. Hiram, I'm afraid I have some bad news. I wanted to tell you in person. Gina Ferrelli is dead. Oh my goodness, that poor child. How did it happen? Looked like suicide. She was found hanging above the stage this morning. I was there. Suicide? How dreadful. Hmm, strange way to commit suicide for such a... Such a what? Well, for such a shy girl. I've really dug up the scoop, you might say, on her. And she didn't at all seem like the kind of girl to do away with herself in such a conspicuous way. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't think that she would want to do away with herself at all. See here, Gina Camilla Ferrelli attended Central High School where she graduated with honors. I have the yearbook right here. She was a very involved student, but always in things that kept her out of the limelight. Hmm... She was accepted to the New York Fine Arts Academy as a dancer, but she declined because her mother's health was failing. She died a year later, and Gina floated from job to job, mostly working in the theater. Oh, here's an interesting note. Gina was ambidextrous. She was brought into the Rockford eight months ago, and she's been there ever since, or rather, had been there. Hiram, what if I told you that I smelled a rat? My dear Spunky, I'd say that I suspected the same thing. There's too much intrigue surrounding this girl for it to have been that simple. Now take this Guthrie's character. His haunts include places as varied as the Dubonnet Club. The Dubonnet Club? Yes, it's sort of a supper club in Manhattan. Doubtless his father pays his membership, and a well-known opium den in Chinatown, near Chatham Square. As a matter of fact, he made a very odd purchase there from a Mr. Chang. Delightful fellow. Two rare poisonous vipers. Very odd indeed. Vipers? Yes. Oh, and you were right about his new involvement. It turns out to be understood in social circles that he is the fiancé of a Jennifer Cromwell. Her father isn't steel. Perhaps the best financial decision he will have ever made. <laughs> Something else has been bothering me, Hiram. Her scream. It just didn't sound like the scream of someone who got scared at the last second. 
It sounded more like horror or shock or surprise. Time to make a phone call. We're going to need an autopsy. That will allow us to work out some facts. Time is of the essence. Operator, 22nd Precinct, please. O'Doyle's desk. Yeah, this is O'Doyle. O'Doyle, it's me. Listen, I've got reason to suspect foul play with the Ferrelli woman last night. Really? Well, because of the public nature of her death, I went ahead and ordered the autopsy. Very good. Well, when will they be finished? It's been underway for a few hours now. They should be finished soon. Why don't you meet me at the coroner's office? Okay. Listen, I have a suspect for you. I want you to bring, him in, bring in Luther Chesterton right away. He works at the Rockford. After we talk with medical examiner, I'd like to question him at the station, okay? Okay, Spunky. I'll bring him in. May I come along? Sure. I might get a few days' work from the police on this one, but until then, who else is going to pay for the cab? Dr. Preston, it's good to see you again. Yes, I only wish it were under more pleasant circumstances. Well, gentlemen, shall we proceed? Gina Ferrelli, Caucasian female, early 20s, slender build, 116 pounds, black hair, no makeup. Trauma to the neck. Spunky, it turns out that this may have been a suicide after all. Really, Dr. Preston? What, uh, what makes you say that? Well, we found this note in her shirt pocket. It's right here. No, oh, please don't touch. Right. Sorry. I'll just take a look. Goodbye. That's the only real clue we've got at the moment. <laughs> it's hardly legible, and it certainly doesn't point to foul play. Um, perhaps... Do you mind if I inspect it, Dr. Preston? Oh, please, feel free. Uh, yes, of course. Oh, that is chilling. What do you see there, Dr. Dickens? Oh, my... Gentlemen, what we have here is something far more disturbing than a simple suicide note. You see, it was written with the left hand, like this. A right hand would not have written it this way, but obviously a left-handed person would have written it more legibly. So then the writer was playing at charades. For the, the sake of Pete, what's he mean, Spunky? Well, he means the person who wrote this note was hoping that we would think that Gina, in her confused emotional state, would have just written the note, not caring that it was with her left hand, which she couldn't write legibly with. That would also make it impossible for us to track the handwriting back to the culprit, since the penmanship with your non-dominant hand would be too erratic to analyze. But, but then how do we know she didn't just write it with her left hand? Because Gina Ferrelli was ambidextrous. She could write perfectly with either hand. Oh my, that is chilling. I see what you mean, Hiram. Spunky, there's another problem with the homicide angle. We checked out the whole building and every door in the place was locked. So was every window except one. The one in her own room. Now, no points of entrance had been tampered with, so unless they came in through that window... Well, isn't there a fire escape? See, now, that's the odd thing. That one fire escape's extending ladder is missing the second segment. Looks like it broke off a long time ago, and that makes the lowest point about ten feet up. And the pavement under it is uneven to use with a ladder. Well, they must have been inside the building to begin with. It's funky. What are you looking at? Dr. Preston... What are these marks on the top of her right foot? Oh, right. Uh, those are scratch marks. Something of a mystery. It doesn't look like they've bled at all. Hmm, probably because she received them after she died. They're very thin, so it could have been anything. Thin but deep, my dear doctor. Look here. Oh, my goodness, you're right. Why, it'd have to have been a blade. Something like a scalpel. Looks like I've got a whole new file to start. Spunky? Yes, we'd better head back to the station, O'Doyle. Hiram, let me know if you find anything else. I will, Spunky. I'll be in contact. As O'Doyle and I went back to the station where Luther was waiting for us, I rolled the facts over in my head. A murder made to look like a suicide. A physically powerful man. A thin blade. It was right in front of me, but I couldn't make it out. I still had more questions than answers. Edwards, get Luther Chesterton out of the pen and bring him to the interview room next to my office. Yes, sir. 
Oh, Dolo, give me some room with this guy, would you? I want to take him for a little ride. See if I can get him to give me answers to more than just the questions that I'm asking. All right, Spunky. But you know how this goes. Stay away from entrapment, okay? I want to get the fella that did this. Uh, don't worry. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Sit down, Chesterton. As Luther Chesterton scanned his surroundings, he saw my face, and his eyes gaped. But he broke it off before O'Doyle could notice. So, so McLean's your real name, or you just a cop? Listen good, Luther. My name is Spunky McLean. I'm a private investigator. Gina Ferrelli was involved in my last case. Now the police have brought me in to help them with something else. So what? What's that got to do with me? Luther, Gina Ferrelli was murdered. I watched him as closely as if I had him under a microscope. In less than a second, he told me everything I wanted to know. He was nervous because he knew he was a suspect. He was enraged because he had feelings for her. And he was confused. He had questions of his own. He was innocent, but he still had information I needed. Gina? That's right, Luther. She was murdered last night, most likely at the theater. When did you leave the Rockford last night? Me? You gotta know that I couldn't have... Answer the question. At what time did you leave the Rockford last night? At the same time I always do, 11.30. Me and Mrs. Spivey, hey, Spivey can tell you, we always leave together. Him and me always lock all the doors together, and then we leave. He'll tell you. Sergeant? I'll have someone check it out. Listen to me now, Luther. I know you didn't do it. But I'm going to need your help to find out a few things. Understand? Yeah, but but what could I... Listen, last night, a little after 11 o'clock, I was at the Rockford, and I was, uh... Wait a minute, that was you? Yes, I... Say, you're not the one who gave me that wallet, were you? Yeah, but but I didn't know he was a P.I. then. I I just thought you were another rich jerk trying to get your hands on Gina. Oh, man. Hey, I'm really sorry about that. Oh, oh, no, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, tell you what, I'll tell my friends I got in the ring with you, but you've got to tell them this happened in the second, okay? That's why I can at least save a little face, okay? <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I just, just don't really feel like laughing right now. I understand, Luther. I know she meant a lot to you. You were very kind to her. She was a lucky girl to have a friend like you. Now listen, last night before you sent me counting sheep, I heard you dragging something. Do you know what I'm talking about? After a second, he nodded slowly. Okay, what happened to that person? Uh, I put him outside, too, except for he was in a different part of the alley than you was. He, he went down like a paper cut out. I see. Luther, they'll let you out of here, but I want you to stay where I can get a hold of you. Understand? Uh, she was really something, you know. She, she just didn't know it was good for her. I understand, Luther. I understand. I thought about that look in Luther's eyes all the way back to the Rockford. I'd seen it plenty. It was a little bit of how did it happen and a whole lot of... Why? Glazed with just a hint of, what do I do now? The next step was back to the scene. Time was running, and I had to try to keep up. When I got to the Rockford, they were having a rehearsal. So I just sat down in the back and tried to see if something would click on my head. Five, six, seven, eight, and turn and lunge and pop and pop. No, 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 lunge, pop, pop. (sighs) Let's try it again. Listen, Red, if you can't make these apes keep up any better than that, then I may as well take my snakes here for a walk. Aren't you too, Jesu? Okay, okay, Barbara. Just hold the snakes up and let the girls do their steps. Behind her, ladies, behind her. Remember, she holds those snakes up. She's going to fall back and you've got to be in place or else we're going to have a real unhappy Miss Davies on our hand. And do you want that? No, do you? Okay, from the break, five, six, seven... Forget about it, Red. I'm taking five. 
Everybody back in five. I needed to call Hiram and see what else he had managed to dig up by this time. I went up to Spivey's office to use the phone and stopped at the corner outside the door. There was shouting inside the office and a very familiar pair of shoulders at the door. It was Underhill's bald-headed thug, Roberts. This guy's barber must use a belt sander. I turned up the sonar and listened hard. Listen to me, Guthries. If it weren't for me, you'd be in jail right now. If you don't come through in three days' time, I won't be responsible for whatever might befall you. Is that a threat, Mr. Underhill, for I'm scarcely intimidated? Three days, Guthries. I've never made an empty threat in my life. And I would not let my expendable relationship with a dim-witted socialite tarnish my perfect record. I have already told you the incident will proceed as planned, and you will have what you want. Everything is in place. I have the opium and the key to the superintendent's storeroom of the old abandoned apartment building a block away. After that, the old building is nothing but ashes. All they'll find is exactly what I leave in the strong box in the super's office. There's no reason to become all upset. Now, why don't you just relax and enjoy the rest of the rehearsal? Mm, quite so. And by the way, the same goes for you, my friend. Our arrangement is running smoothly. Please do what you can to prevent any mishaps. They were coming to the door. Are you sure that Mr. Roberts shouldn't accompany you to make sure there are no more delays? Yes, uh, no, no, I mean no. That will be quite unnecessary. Very well. Then I shall expect to hear from you tomorrow. They walked away and down the stairs. Guthries was wearing a felt rounder hat that didn't match his attire. Something was cooking, and I didn't have a lot of time to figure out who was in the kitchen or what was in the oven. That shiny bald head reminded me of my own flop. I had to pay a visit to my own barber, Sweet Bobby. I did some of my best thinking between the barber's chair and a hair apron. But first, I had to get in touch with Hiram. When the coast was clear, I stepped into the office to make my call. <laughs> Spivey! It's just me. You remember? Oh, yes. Mr. McLean, isn't it? You did startle me. I just wanted to ask if I could use the phone. Uh, I saw some guys leave here, so I uh, thought there wouldn't be anybody using it. Oh, them? I don't even know those men. I, I didn't hear anything. Spivey, uh, are you in some trouble here? I'm sure I do not know what you mean. Listen, Spivey, I heard what they said. And I know a lot more than that. So if you've got some singing to do, you better do it before my friend Sergeant O'Dole gets involved. You understand? I'm innocent. They're the guilty ones. What's going on? I don't know. All I know is that... Underhill bid to purchase the Rockford, but the owner still won't sell. Underhill is trying to drive them out of business and depress local property values to get them even cheaper. If the owner defaults on another payment, the deed will revert back to the bank. So Underhill was going to all the trouble of renovating the Rockford because... Hey, don't go anywhere. Stay here until I'm finished. We're going to wrap this whole thing up tonight. Hello, Hiram? Spunk. I've got so much to tell, I don't know where to begin. You see, there's been something of a rush on real estate in this area, all by Underhill. He's been making this move on the village, but so far has been unable to capture its cornerstone, namely the Rockford Theatre. Oh, and something else. It turns out Rhonda Carlyle was briefly engaged to Guthrie's, after which she disappeared from her family and social life. All right, Hiram, meet me at the Rockford in two hours, and bring me whatever else you've got. I'm not going to be involved in any of this. You'll be down on that stage in two hours, or you'll be spending the night in jail for obstruction of justice, Spivey. Operator, give me the 22nd precinct. O'Doyle's desk. O'Doyle? Yes, Spunky. What have you got? I need you to round up some people and bring them to the Rockford. Oh, it's to be a group interview at the scene of the crime, is it? All right, how about next... No, 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 tonight. In two hours. Here are the names. I wasn't about to have an interview looking like I did. So in the same time I had, I had to make a trip down to Sweet Bobby's Barbershop. Hey, say, Spunky, I was just wondering when you was going to come back. Well, better late than never. Uh, 
Sorry, Sweet Bobby. I'm kind of in a hurry. Do you mind? Oh, just... no problem. I'll have you out of here in a jiff. Have a seat right here. Thanks, Sweet Bobby. I sure do appreciate it. The whip of the cape as it came down over me and the songs of the Victrola put me at ease. Bobby pulled his shears from his lower pocket of his shirt where the tip had worn through the cotton weave. <laughs> I've been having a real pickle of a time with the case I'm working on. Oh, and... yeah? Something about a robbery or a con or something like that? Well, you know, I can't say just yet, but I can say it has something to do with that bump back there on my head. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting to see if you was going to bring that up. Did somebody belt you? Did you get it snooping around somewhere? Both, actually. Uh, yeah, I guess that wasn't the best way to use my head. <laughs> Must be catching. Had another guy in here earlier that got a bump on his coconut just like yours. Really? What did he look like? Oh, high society type. Wore a hat to cover it up. Didn't leave no tip, though. <laughs> Typical. Well, well. You know, sweet Bobby, the more I think about this case, the more complicated it gets. Sweet Bobby took a wrapped piece of peppermint candy out of his pocket. I know what you mean. Sometimes, like when I lose something, I try and try to look all over the shop for it. Then when I stop thinking about it, bam! I remember I left it back in my apartment. <laughs> hey, you want a peppermint? The hard peppermint candy crumbled like a potato chip between Bobby's fingers. And then it hit me. Just like Sweet Bobby said. Uh, Sweet Bobby, you know, I could really use an expert witness for this case. Me? What do I know? I mean, what am I an expert at? Why, sports, of course. Oh, sports? You mean like trivia? Oh, wow, I can tell you all about that. Heard this guy once on a quiz show. Uh, what, what are you doing tonight? I close up shop in about 15 minutes. Then I'm free. Good. I'll have Sergeant O'Dole send a car around to pick you up in, uh, in an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. How's that look? Like I should be on a hot day tonight, rather than working on a case. <laughs> Here you go, sweet Bobby. Hey, thanks, Bucky. Oh, thanks for letting me be a witness, too. An expert witness. See you tonight, sweet Bobby. I had O'Doyle situate everyone in a circle on the left wing of the stage, among the sandbags, stage equipment, and a facade painted to look like the wall of a castle. The stage was set. The players that night were to be Rhonda Carlyle, Darlene Lovejoy, Sylvester Underhill, and his thug Roberts, J.C. Guthries, Luther Chesterton, Barbara Davies, Leonard Spivey, and my secret weapon, Sweet Bobby Terrell. He was waiting out of sight in the orchestra pit. Just have a seat right over there, Miss Carlyle. Just what exactly am I here for? One might as well just ask what any of us are doing here. Hello, darling. Don't talk to me. Why not? Are you afraid your new friends might think we have a history? Oh! And why are you wearing a hat indoors? Silly girl, where else will I put it? On my elbow? Well, I, for one, will not be delayed any longer than is absolutely necessary. Mr. Roberts and I are here. We're in compliance with justice, O'Doyle. I will not have you taking liberties with my schedule because of your incompetence. Do you understand me? Whatever you say, Mr. Underhill. Just! Sylvester, you're always such a bore. None of us want to be here, least of all me. I've got an entire show to transform from the train wreck we had this afternoon into a decent production. Hey! Oh, this is a great we deal, Miss Davies. No, I thought it looked nice. Shut up, Mr. When I need your opinion on how to clean a toilet, I'll ask you. Oh, am I late? Oh, no, it looks like I'm a bit early. Very good. Hello, Sergeant. Where can I... Uh... Uh, right over here, Dr. Dickens. Hello, everyone. Did you miss me? Good, Spunky. I've got everything you asked for and quite a bit more. I would expect nothing less from you, my good friend. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who don't already know, my name is Spunky McLean. I'm a private investigator working with the police on a homicide case. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you. The victim in this case is one, none other than Miss Gina Ferrelli. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It is now believed that Miss Ferrelli was murdered, and the chief suspects are here tonight. If you're in a rush to get out of here... I wouldn't try it until Sergeant O'Doyle says so. Now, every way in and out of this building is locked except for two. 
The front door is the first, and it's guarded by two police officers, and the other is the one the killer used on the night of the crime. Mr. Chesterton, which exits were locked when you left the theater at 11.30 on the night in question? Uh, all of them. I checked all the doors, and they was all locked. And you're quite sure of that? Uh, yeah. I can attest to that, Mr. McLean. I also checked all the doors that night, and they were most certainly locked. And precisely 11.31, Luther and I left the Rockwood through the front door, which I locked. Good enough, Mr. Spivey. Luther, what about the windows? Uh... I can also speak for Luther on that. One of the rules here at the Rockwood is that no window should be, remain open in this building unless someone is in the room. Everyone knows how I feel about that. We're not running an aviary here. Besides, you also check the windows at night to make sure, don't you, Luther? Yeah, that's right. Hmm. But on the night in question, there is a chance that one window is left open, as per exactly the condition that you maintained. Luther, why might there have been one window open? Because, uh, because there was someone in there. And who was that? Gina. What? Yes, Mr. Spivey. In this particular case, Miss Varelli had fallen on hard times. And Luther here was kind enough to do what little he could. Namely, hide from you the fact that Gina had been staying in her dressing room. Well, she, she could have come to me. I, I would have... She lived in her dressing room. But she was not in that room when she was murdered. Now, how do you know that? Two reasons. Miss Davies, has anyone ever told you that you are a very beautiful woman? Why does it always come back to that? <laughs> of course. All the time. <laughs> Let's just say that my fans keep the local florists in business. <laughs> Has anyone ever said it about you when you weren't wearing makeup? Whatever do you mean? Let me put this another way. How often would you say that a girl should try to look her best? Well, always, of course. Uh, so when a girl is not wearing makeup, would you say that she is not uh, presentable? Of course not. I see. At the end of the day, when do you take off your makeup? Right before I go to bed. Uh, ladies, would you agree with Miss Davies? Of course. Mr. Spivey, where is the lady performer's powder room? At the opposite end of the hall from the men's, at the uh, corner of the hallway where Miss Ferrelli's uh, room was. So then, she would have had to go all the way to the end of the hall, to the powder room, and then back to her room. Say, it's... Spunky, what are you getting at? Where was she murdered? In a moment, Sergeant. For now, I will leave it at this. When Miss Ferrelli's body was discovered, she was not wearing any makeup. Now, up until earlier today, I believe that I was the last person, besides the killer, of course, to hear Miss Gina Ferrelli alive. I arrived here at 11.06. I walked in the front door, as it was suspiciously left open. Now, this, I believe, was no accident. Miss Ferrelli herself had a rendezvous planned for the late evening. However, the gentleman caller would never reach her. He was being dragged by his assailant, who had rendered him unconscious, and I heard it. By the time I realized I was in danger, it was too late. Uh, both he and I were left in piles of refuge in the alleyways behind this theater. Then, when I heard a scream, that brought me back to consciousness. I called Sergeant O'Doyle and reported it. Now, that scream was the last sound Miss Ferrelli would make in this life. It was midnight, exactly. When Miss Ferrelli had been disappointed from her rendezvous, she probably proceeded to remove her makeup and go to bed. The killer had already entered through the window in her room, which she had left open to enjoy the spring night air. When she came back to the doorway of her own room, she was startled and screamed out her last breath. It was cut off abruptly, however, as the killer used what the medical examiner believes to have been unusually powerful hands to crush a windpipe and end her life. Now, the race was on to cover it up. The killer only had minutes to think of a way to make this look like a suicide. And knowing that one crushed throat looks much like another, the killer wisely chose suicide by hanging, which could be faked using tools close at hand. A noose was quickly constructed. Her lifeless body dragged to the catwalks above. Along the way received tiny cuts to her right foot from something being carried in the pocket of the killer. And then she was dropped. To the place where she was discovered, six feet above the stage, just there. That is a fantastic bunch of drivel. 
How do you know it wasn't just a simple suicide? If she had been stood up from a rendezvous, she most certainly could have... Fantastic, yes, but not fantasy. The autopsy clearly shows the crushing of the windpipe to be in the pattern of hands, not this noose. Yes. Yes, it is. This is the noose that held Miss Forelli above this very stage. Dr. Preston, the chief medical examiner, confirmed that uh, there were finger-shaped bruises on the back of the neck. He said there would, had to have been complex knot work in the rope to achieve a similar effect. And as you can all see, there is none. Her derailed rendezvous may have been a disappointment, but it was certainly not unexpected. Now, the person with whom she planned to meet had been a disappointment to her for some time, as he has been to his father and even his business associates. Mr. Guthries, would you mind terribly taking off the hat that you have been conspicuously wearing since the night of Gina's death? Mr. McLean, you may disagree with my sense of style, but please... Off with it, Guthries, or it gets done right here before we delouse you. Very well, Sergeant. No need to become crass. J.C., where did you get that lump? The same place I got mine, Miss Carlyle, from Luther. It was you? What? Do you know who I am? I could sue you for every Careful, penny. Guthries, I believe that Luther may turn out to be your alibi. Me, me I ain't nothing of his. What he means, Luther... As that you're knocking him out proves that he wasn't the killer. Exactly. The first reason I know that Miss Forelli was not killed in her room is that she was startled by the killer. And she most certainly would not have been startled by Mr. Guthrie's. Nor would she have been startled by someone slowly going through the noisy process of climbing the fire escape and crawling through a window. The other reason is that the killer was startled by her. Now the CME report shows that the windpipe was crushed and the neck was nearly broken. This all happened in a matter of less than a second. The killer grasped without thinking, purely reacting to her scream. But that's impossible. The fire escape's broken. It doesn't come any closer than nine feet to the ground. I, I've been meaning to fix it, but... Oh, no, Chester. It's ten feet from the ground. You see, everyone, there's a segment missing from the ladder, which disallows it from extending down as far as it's supposed to. The person who climbed that ladder either had to have another ladder, which probably could not have worked, as Sergeant O'Doyle pointed out, as the pavement is very irregular in that alley, or jump ten feet high. Well, how about that? Looks like the little private eye painted himself into a corner. I say, I think she's right. You didn't think quite far ahead enough on that one. It's obvious no one here could jump that high. I mean, you'd need an Olympic high jumper to do that. I'm afraid my event was a 200-meter dash. <laughs> oh, I think your attempt on Miss Forelli's life would have required a different set of skills and only about $60 or so. I'm afraid I do not know what you mean. Narlene, do you recognize this face? Miss Davies, I'm going to go very slowly and I'm going to open this lid of the vase. Now I want you to carefully take a look and tell me what you see. Don't be ridiculous, McLean. I've been working with these two animals for a month. They're so sweet. <laughs> ah! What in the world are those two beasts doing in there? Uh, this is not the vase you use during your performance, Miss Davies. It's a backup. My guess is that if Gina was ever actually called upon to perform in your place, she would have outperformed you by so much that the Rockford might have become truly profitable. Now, this is something that Mr. Guthrie's and his partner just could not let happen. I don't see what you're talking about. I've never seen those serpents before in my life. My boy, you really don't have the winning hand this round. I have here a receipt from Mr. Chang, who sold you these poisonous vipers not two days ago. Is this not your signature? J.C., you are a rat, and I've always known it. But I never thought you could be capable Miss, Miss Carlyle, of... please, please, sit down. Mr. Guthrie's may be guilty of a crime, but he was not capable of this one, as he has already pointed out. I understand that you feel passionate and that you want to, you know... I don't care if he dies! He deserves to die! My dear, please. I tried. Underhill wouldn't listen to me. I intercepted two notes from Gina's fans right after the performance the other night. I showed them to Underhill, told her that I wouldn't stand for J.C. getting in the way of her happiness. You were all wrong for her. 
She was a hundred times better than you. How could you do that? I wasn't even there. How could you even think that I, that Gina and I were involved? This is hardly an alibi, Mr. Guthrie's. No, the fact is that you were out of money. Your line of credit with your own father grows thin like ice in the spring. The rushing waters below you of the costliness of extravagant taste combined with poor business decisions have forced you to seek sources of income foreign to you, but not foreign to your partner, Mr. Underhill. Stuff and nonsense. I warn you, McLean, if you libel Mr. me... Mr. Underhill, I promise I will not libel you. Merely expose you. What? The other night I overheard a conversation between the two of you while you were in Mr. Spivey's office. Now, you may recall how it went. Something about driving down the price of real estate in the area. The old building down the street. Opium. Arson. Arson, is it? It's well known that Mr. Underhill has been trying to acquire real estate in this area. However, because of certain local attractions, attention to this area grows daily and with it the price of property. The arson you were planning most certainly would have temporarily depressed the local market. And with business as usual here at the Rockford, the owner was sure to go under within a couple of weeks. What about all the improvements? How could the owner be in trouble all of a sudden? Because the improvements were not paid for by the owner, my dear. A Unified Holdings Corporation paid for them. Unified Holdings Corporation is a subsidiary of Underhill International. You paid for all of that? I am a patron of this establishment, dear. It is expected. My eye. No, Underhill. These donations were not patronage, but investment. I believe you expected to own the Rockford by now. But who owns it now? The theater was held in trust for Beatrice Nesbitt. Her family went bankrupt, and when she became old enough, she assumed the payments, and she has been maintaining the note to the bank ever since. Also, for reasons most likely pertaining to her social standing and her career, she had her name legally changed to Barbara Davies. That's right. I changed it. Do you know how hard it is to even get a dinner reservation in Manhattan with the name Nesbitt? Uh, wait a minute. If they was wanting Gina to stay out of the spotlight... Then maybe that, under, that Underhill guy had his pansy here to do his work for him. Mr. Underhill, if I am correct, your associate cannot speak. Uh, would you mind giving us his height and weight? Robert is six feet tall and weighs approximately 225 pounds. He could not have possibly jumped ten feet. Well, it just so happens that we have an expert witness on hand. Uh, Sergeant O'Doyle, if you would. Clemens, send him in. Sweet Bobby shuffled in. Clemens was behind him. The barber, with the heart of gold, was as white as a ghost. He looked like someone speaking in front of a large group for the very first time. Uh, you all right, sweet Bobby? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, it's just my first time being an expert witness is all. That's okay, sweet Bobby. Just have a seat over there. Yeah, okay. All right. We were just discussing what it would take to jump ten feet high. You know all about that, don't you, sweet Bobby? Oh, you mean like a vertical? That, that's right, like a vertical jump. I'm about 5'10". Uh, how high do you think I could jump? Well, I guess if you're 5'10", if you're then that would put your wingspan at about 5'9". So your arms is about, I don't know, 27 inches top to tip? That sounds about right. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, a guy your height could stand foot to tip at about 7'3". And if you jump 20 inches, you'd get to 8'11". Only 20. Oh, yeah, I mean, I didn't think you really exercised a lot of nothing. That's about what most guys who... I mean, I didn't mean anything bad by it. Oh, no, sweet Bobby. 20 is probably about right. I don't really exercise any more than walking around the village. Now, what would it take to jump 10 feet? Oh, well, you either got to be real, real tall, or you got to be in pretty good shape, but you still got to be tall, at least 6'3". And who are some people who could jump that high? Oh, I know them all. Let's see. You got Ralph Harrison, Oscar Silva, Jerry... How about Paul. the ones that went to Central High? Oh, at Central? Oh, not too many. Let's see here. You got Tommy Shopton, Les Thurgood, Jack DeFrance, Fred Hamilton, Fred Locke, <laughs> two Freds, Stan Holland, Gary Hybels, Horace Greenberg, oh, gosh, let me see... Oliver, yeah, Oliver Fredericks, and I think that's all of them all the way back to Art 9, when the school first started. Uh, there's one more, sweet Bobby. I forgot one? Wait, let me see. I mean, uh, what kind of expert witness? Uh, uh, who is it, Hiram? I have his dossier right here. 
I got this from the coaching department at Central High School. Name, Robert T. Tyrell. Vertical jump, ten feet, two inches. Oh, me? Well, I guess I was thinking about everyone but me. You know when they tell you to count everybody, you always forget to count yourself. Say, uh, sweet Bobby, what's that worn spot on your jacket? Oh, I put my shears in there sometimes. I'll be dancing around and forget about them. Before I know it, the tip will wear right through. Because the blades are so thin? Oh, yeah, thin and sharp. I like to keep them real sharp. Keeps from pulling on anyone's hair when I cut it. What's everyone staring at? You killed her! What are you talking about? You killed Gina! You killed her! The fire escape, the cuts on her leg! You were the one sending the carnations! I, I did... You're the one! She didn't kill herself! You'd have let everyone believe that she killed herself, you coward! And then, it all happened in a flash. Rhonda lunged towards Ford at Bobby, and Bobby was on his feet with amazing speed, his outstretched hand holding her throat. As quick as lightning, Luther struck Bobby in the arm and knocked his grip loose. Rhonda fell, holding her neck, gasping. Bobby caught Luther off balance and swept him off to the floor. O'Doyle drew his weapon. Everyone was on their feet. All right, that's enough, Bobby. O'Doyle was thrown by Bobby's long, powerful sweeping arm, and falling backward and knocking down Clemens, he landed on the floor where he slid behind a curtain. I kept my distance. I turned and saw Underhill hiding behind Roberts, who stood calm and unfazed. Barbara grabbed the vase out of my hands and threw it at Bobby's chest. Ugh! The vipers were loose. They writhed angrily at Bobby's heels. Luther was on him again, and this time he wasn't going down. A right hook to Bobby's side spun him around. Bobby jumped forward and reached for Luther's neck, but Luther ducked the whole thing and put a bone hammer to Bobby's chin. Bobby landed. What the... The viper was wriggling wildly from Bobby's neck, anchored by its sunken fangs. Ah, get it off me! Get it off me! Bobby crushed the snake's head with his powerful grip and slowly drew the fangs from the side of his neck. Ah, Mary and Joseph. Shouldn't somebody call an ambulance? I'm afraid it wouldn't do any good, my dear. These vipers are the Echis one of the deadliest snakes in the world. There isn't a hospital in New York that would have its antivenom. And it would take too long to derive it from the remaining specimen. Bobby, I'm, I'm afraid you don't have much time. Yeah, I kind of figured that. Spunky. I'm right here, Bobby. You gotta believe me. It was an accident. I just wanted to talk to her. Oh, it was dark, and when she screamed, my hands moved faster than I could think. She just fell down and wouldn't stop breathing again. Spunky, I tried mouth to mouth, but her throat was crushed. I, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I just thought there was enough harm done, so I... All stood silent. You shouldn't try to talk, Bobby. Just relax. What's the difference now? I knew she was in trouble. That guy. Who? Underhill? Yeah. He was talking to someone else, saying they was going to kill her. I heard him talking about the snakes when I came to give her some flowers one night. Was talking about how she never got to play the lead. They said they couldn't let her. Oh, they, she was just too good. Ever since high school, so graceful. This man is dying. He cannot possibly have been coherent enough to know what he was saying. Oh, shut up, Sylvester! Stinking, rotten murderer! Ah, careful, dear. That's right, I said murderer. Maybe not with your own hands, but who knows how many. Mm, I do apologize, Barbara. It appears we have worn out our welcome. Well, my dear, it may have been a fire that put you in ownership of the Rockford, but I do believe that a fire is about to take you out of it. Spivey, you really should have kept that new extinguishing system in better repair. (laughs) They say money cures all ills. 
I suppose I'll just have to let the fire policy I bought in this building heal the wounds of this situation. Mr. Roberts, if you would, please dispense with the witnesses. <laughs> Roberts suddenly brandished two forty-five caliber pistols from his jacket. The shots were wild. Clemens took one on his chest. And one caught Luther in his shoulder. <laughs> I reacted out of pure instinct. I fell back towards the curtain and whipped the lid off the vase out of my pocket and right at Roberts' shiny head. <laughs> He was stunned for a split second. He tried to step forward, but something was holding his leg. It was Bobby. With his dying breath, he pulled Roberts back towards him. Roberts leveled his rod at Bobby. O'Doyle was on his feet. He leapt forward. His 38 in in the lead. Roberts took him all in the chest, and he was down. Underhill, who had ducked to one side of the gunfire, reached for a pistol from Roberts' dead hand. Step away from him, Underhill, or you'll get the same. Underhill froze and glared at me like a reptile. Here, take these, Spunky. Cuff him. I've got him covered. Gladly. Great show, O'Doyle. Sergeant O'Doyle. Uh, over here, boys. Come give us a hand. Damn you, McLean. You have no idea what you have just brought upon yourself. Underhill, if it's anything half as bad as your cologne, then I'm truly worried. Why, you uncouth, ill-bred. enough out of you, Underhill. Let's you go. Floundering, ridiculous dog-a-beast. Back at Mama Rosette's patisserie, Hiram and I recovered with some delicious French fare. And then Luther finally got the best of him. Truly a skilled pugilist. I suppose with that shoulder wound, he'll have to take a hiatus from his boxing career for a bit. Yes, a lot of people are going to need time to heal. And for some, it's too late. Funky, you should not think about these things. Here, try my potato and onion soup, eh? I think it will make you forget about anything unpleasant. Oh, that smelled absolutely delicious. What's the secret of your recipe? I'll tell you. It's a secret. (laughs) Believe me, Hiram, if Underhill and his money couldn't get it out of her, I don't think we stand a chance. Yes, this is true. You will never know the secrets of my cooking unless you inherit them, huh? Ah, oh, pay no attention to her. So you're probably trying to figure out how I figured this all out, right? Well, let me tell you. Something Bobby said made me think. Bobby said he found things where he wasn't looking for them. It just made me think of how all the intrigue surrounding the case may have been nothing more than that. And without knowing it, Sweet Bobby became both the secret and the solution. So you're probably wondering about the elaborate interview last night at the Rockford. Well, ladies, Guthrie's and Underhill had to be exposed. Far greater crimes would have been committed in short order if they were allowed to go free. I'll tell you what, it was something else that night. Ladies, I'll be fine. I just need some some rest and let some time pass. What a night. What a night. Well, so there I was. I had lost consciousness, my barber and good friend, and a good deal of sleep over the last 48 hours. And I didn't feel easy about any of it. But then, like Hiram would say, an eaglet thrown from the nest of its birth is a sad thing. But if it never left the nest... We would never see it soaring so high. Spunky, come and help me back in the kitchen. <laughs> Coming, Florel. You've been listening to the Texas Radio Theater Company's original production of Spunky McLean and the Murder at the Rockford Theater. Brought to you by the Arlington Museum of Art, whose goal is to challenge everyone to think creatively. Spunky McLean was written and directed by Sonny Bynum. The voice talents of Christina Danapolis, 
Shannon Atkinson. Jess Bryce. Rachel Baker. Desiree Folt. Ken Rainey. Peggy Botts Kirby. Rich Baker. Matthew David Ducey. Holland Sanders and Rod Wayne. The original music was performed by Brandon Brown. Sound effects were engineered by Brandon Brown and Josh Cox. It was produced and engineered by Richard Perlin. I'm your announcer, Elliot Gilbert. Thank you very much for listening to the Texas Radio Theater Company. And have a very pleasant evening. That was the conclusion. Spunky McLean and the murder at the Rockford Theater. It was written and directed by Sonny Bynum. It was performed and recorded one night only on May 17, 2002. The Texas Radio Theater Company, in cooperation with the Arlington Museum of Art, performs and records modern audio theater in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. If you'd like more information about our group, you can log on to our website at texasradiotheater.com or you can look for us on Facebook. I'm Rich Froelich, and on behalf of our cast and crew, thanks for listening. <laughs>